This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, April 15th, 2022. With me is someone who is never taxing when we talk about the news, Michael Tilley with Talk Business and Politics. Michael, happy Friday. Well, happy Friday. Happy nice Friday. Yeah. I think maybe, maybe we have left the snow flurries and the winter weather behind us. Well, you just screwed it up. Right, you're right. Let's begin kind of a continuation of something we talked about last week when we were talking about superintendent and teacher pay. There's a story right now at talkbusiness.net about Fort Smith teacher pay, or at least a proposal for teacher pay. What does it tell us? Well, if we remember, you know, the um, Fort Smith School Board kind of got in trouble. You know, they approved um, the superintendent uh, pay, Dr. Terry Murawski, approved his pay, and it was essentially um, 14.5% uh, pay increase since December uh, 30th of 2020. During that time, the average teacher pay had only increased 1.1%, so that was a big uh-oh, and um, it received somewhat of a public spanking for it. So their proposal that they came out with, and it'll be considered – or we expect it to be considered this upcoming Monday night at a regular school board meeting um, is a broad salary increase for certified staff. Now the average of all the salaries is like, is about five and a half percent. And the proposal, it's complex. I'm not going to get down into the weeds of it, but raises will range depending on how much time you have in service and most of the range, and most of the pay increases are targeted toward incoming teachers, uh, but the ranges, uh, the pay ranges are from six hundred and ten dollars to six uh, to sixty three hundred dollars. So it's quite a range. So that's uh, like zero point eight percent up to sixteen percent, um, with again that average increase across the board being about thirty two hundred dollars or the five and a half percent. That is not a bad pay increase. Um, I still think, though, and I guess I shouldn't laugh, but just on social media and some of the teacher forums, um, it's still they're still not happy. I think I'm not sure there's anything they can do to, to, un, <laughs> to uh, I got to figure out a better word than what I was going to say, to un- mess up what they did. Um, with giving Dr. Morowski such a huge increase over a short period of time. Um, that and some teachers are saying, and it'll be interesting to see what the board members say Monday night, but that the pay increases really go toward trying to recruit uh, new teachers and retain relatively new teachers and don't do enough to um, you know, pay some of the veteran teachers who've stuck it through the last couple of years of what's been a very tough, tough teaching environment. So um, that'll be interesting. It, this is, though, you know, five and a half percent pay increase uh, on average across the board is that's that's a healthy pay increase. It's just unfortunately for the school board, they're kind of they're having to dig themselves out of the hole of that huge increase they gave uh, the superintendent. As you mentioned, this is, I mean, going to be considered. It, it sounds as if people expect it to to be passed but it hasn't officially yet yeah look i don't i'm not sure i'm not 100 percent convinced it'll be passed uh, approved 
exactly as the school administration is laying it out, laying it out. I think it'll look like this roughly at the end, but I, I'm, I will be surprised if there are not some tweaks to it. All right. Teachers, of course, have really had a, a, a challenging couple of years. So have people who rely on tourism. Good news for the Fort Smith Van Buren area for tourism 2021. Understandably better than 2020. Yeah, a lot better and even more than, you know, we knew that it was rebounding in 2021, even though we had some, unfortunately, had some serious COVID surges, especially late in the year. Um, but uh, I just stopped to kind of go back and look at the numbers. We looked at Van Buren, um, and when you measure their industry, um, they generated 743000 from their hospitality taxes. That was up um, – of course, big time over 2020 is up almost 26% over 2020, but it was up almost 19% uh, above the record they had set in 2019 in that pre-pandemic year. Um, and that's something I think I hope a lot of your uh, listeners will remember is Arkansas's tourism industry and these regional tourism industries were doing very well. I mean, growing at double-digit numbers, the number of visitors – um, was growing all across the state um, for several years. And then, of course, we had COVID. We had 2020. And then, and so you had that incredible. So in 2021, to see a 19% increase above what was a record in 2019, it's pretty impressive. In Fort Smith, um, the city collected uh, just under 962000 on its um, hospitality revenue. Uh, and that was above, not not a lot, but it was above the record of 920,000 in 2019. It was, all, it was also up almost 50% compared to 2020, but it was also above the 2019 level. So um, that speaks well. I, mean, I, I still see we, the jobs in the region still haven't returned fully. They're still lagging the pre-pandemic numbers, but it's clear just based on these numbers that both um, tourists and business travelers, as well as people who live in the area, because, for example, in Van Buren, they have a part of their tax is a 1% tax on prepared food. Um, the remainder, both enforcement and Van Buren, is on hotel lodging. So that's really measures out-of-town travel, but whether it's business or tourism. So it's clear in the enforcement Van Buren area that um, there was a healthy rebound in 2021, and I talked to Meryl, Ke- uh, Meryl Purvis. She's in Van Buren. She's director of the Advertising Promotion Commission there, uh, and Tim, Jake- Tim Jacobson, her counterpart over in Fort Smith, both see uh, a strong 2022. They, they, those trends uh, that they were seeing in 2021 uh, have not abated in this year, so I would not be surprised to see another record number. Well. You know, when we when we think about the pandemic, there are certain words that come to mind that we use a lot: pivot, uh, quarantine, uh, asymptomatic. Here's one that's been associated with it: shortage. And just when you think you've heard of all those shortages, there might be a barge shortage. At least there's demand for more barges, based on the river tonnage report that you've got at TalkBusiness.net. Yeah, I was. Um, it was an interesting story. I, I finally got the first quarter tonnage numbers uh, on the river. Uh, and they're up 10% compared to the same time last year. Um, so I called Marty Shell just to kind of get some color on it. 
He's president of Van Buren-based Five Rivers. He operates the port in Fort Smith uh, and the port facility in Van Buren. He's also uh, a member of the Arkansas Waterways Commission. And he quickly said, look, those numbers would have been a lot better if we could have had access to more barges. He said, as soon as we get a barge and get it unloaded, it's already being you know, tagged to be sent somewhere and filled up again. So um, his take was that you know, with the diesel prices, which really uh, hit trucks and rail, that has moved um, some, you know, some movement of commodities to barges. And so he thinks that um, the, the trend will continue and that the river traffic will continue to rise in 2022. Um, interestingly enough, he says what the products that are coming in, the the bulk of the products coming into the Fort Smith Van Buren area uh, is fertilizer, feed for the poultry industry, and steel. And I, I think that's a good example uh, of, you know, when people say, well, why do we need the river or what, you know, what benefit do we get? Well, those are, those are um, you know, core, the two of those three are core to our food cycle. Um, so I, I, I like to eat every once in a while. So I think that's important. Uh, and then what's being shipped out according to Marty, uh, is a lot of grain from Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma that reaches the Fort Smith area and loaded up on barges and sent to New Orleans and out to the Gulf of Mexico. So again, um, important to the nation's uh, food cycle, uh, is the river traffic. All right. You can read about the river traffic, the tonnage and everything else we've talked about and so much more at talkbusiness.net. Michael, a pleasure as always. Talk to you next Friday. Hey, yes, sir. I'll always enjoy it. Thanks. Walton Art Center's 10 by 10 Arts Series presents the dance theater company Contra Tiempo's performance of Joy Us, Just Us, Saturday, April 16th. Taking on joy as the ultimate expression of resistance, this performance reclaims the narrative of people of color being voiceless, powerless, and victimized. WaltonArtsCenter.org or 443-5600 for tickets. The University of Arkansas Department of Political Science offers political science and public administration and nonprofit studies graduate programs. Both programs train the next generation of local, state, national, and global leaders in the public, nonprofit, and private sectors. Applications for fall 2022 and graduate assistantships are available for qualified applicants plsc.uark.edu for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. This weekend marks the opening of a new traveling exhibition from the Smithsonian Institution in the historic town of Cane Hill. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has this preview of the outdoor display highlighting the Ozarks landscape. If you don't know a lot about 19th century Northwest Arkansas history, you could be forgiven for speeding through the small Washington County community of Cane Hill, located just 20 miles southwest of Fayetteville near the Oklahoma border. What was once a bustling pioneer settlement in the 1800s, home to the first public school and public library in the state, is now mostly covered up by lush forest and pastures. And just as surprising is that this quiet community is now hosting the latest traveling exhibition from the Smithsonian Institution. But as Lawrence McElroy, Director of Arts and Culture for Historic Cane Hill Incorporated, the nonprofit that oversees the town's historic buildings, 
says that all makes Cane Hill the perfect destination to host this particular exhibit. We've been known for, uh, you know, restoration and preservation of historic architecture here, but we have many more plans than that. And one of those is uh, preservation and restoration of the historic landscape. So with habitat being focused on nature, ecology, habitats, it was a perfect marriage. That exhibition called Habitat is opening to the public this weekend, and it's one of the Smithsonian's Traveling Installation Series, an outdoor educational exhibit displayed at nature centers, arboretums, or botanical gardens around the U.S. that explores environmental preservation and conservation. McElroy and historic Cane Hill staff have been working for more than a year to bring the Build It Yourself exhibit to the area. The Smithsonian provides digital files of graphic panels and shop drawings for 3D-dimensional sculptures that host sites then build and display. Vanessa McEwen, executive director of Historic Cane Hill, says the actual exhibit was only a portion of the work that had to be done to get the project off the ground. She points to a newly constructed bridge above a section of Jordan Creek. We had some some good help along the way, but uh, a very long process to get it designed and permitted and and built. Um, She says the nonprofit had to put in a whole new infrastructure to accommodate visitors for the exhibition, from parking to picnic areas and walkways, and even renovating the trail system that would host the bulk of the exhibit. David Collins is a public programs manager for Historic Cane Hill. That's a huge deal. We had... was telling them a while back we had uh, I looked on a a trail app you know for hikers and and so many people were saying you know there are really great trails out here but there's the the access for it is not really you know or there's no there's no clear delineation so um so they have done a huge amount of work just on the trails themselves and that's not including putting up panels (laughs) Habitat has 14 thematic sections that dot the nearly four-mile exhibit. Two of those displays, called Fossil Cove and Ozark Streams, were written and developed specifically for the Cane Hill exhibition. The self-guided tour starts out at the Visitor Center in Cane Hill, which also has a video tour and display for those with limited mobility, then moves across Highway 45 to the newly renovated hiking trails. This is one of the first exhibit areas called Habitat of Flight. And I talked about trying to curate this trail system for, you know, put this exhibition in this venue. Some of the exhibit areas were very challenging to find a spot for them. And then some just chose their own spots. And this is a good example. Habitat of Flight is not just about birds, but it's also about winged seeds called samaras. They're talked about on that panel right there in front of us. And so that girl, the trees you're looking at right there are box elders, and they are covered with samara, these little winged seeds that helicopter to the ground. So that's where this one had to land. McElroy says a team of experts helped him contextualize where the different sections that cover everything from bug life and fungi to live oak trees and even sea life would go. Well, Habitat put me through a learning experience. We were able to contact a variety of experts in all sorts of different habitats. And, and that helped me uh, uh, open my eyes to all the varied habitats that are here that I had overlooked. So I, I know a lot more than I used to just, just from a year and a half ago. So we, we are deeply indebted to all those experts. 
and aquatic biology and botanists and et cetera. With, with, this has been dependent on them to, to help me put this together. And Collins says the Arkansas Natural Heritage Commission also helped to explore the area and highlight some of Cane Hill's unique landscape. Um, they said that one or two of them had come out here, Theo Witzel, and, who's a botanist there, and, uh, and uh, Dustin Lynch, who's an, who's an ecologist there, had come out here and just, just basically had a field day, you know, going through the, going through the trails, looking at all the native uh, plant species and things like that, that Lawrence and Vanessa, you know, uh, had, had not even known, you know, were here or that were abundant if they were here. Historically, you know, there had been accounts of, of wild grapes growing here. Absolutely. And then and Theo Witzel discovered those wild grapes and confirmed so. Further up the trail past Jordan Creek, a school of blue and yellow fish sculptures are suspended along the moss-covered rocks. This is the foundations of the sea panel, which McElroy says was the most puzzling to place. But then it dawned on me that this, at one point, used to be an inland sea. Where you're standing, you're standing on the seabed of a shallow inland sea. And so uh, those, that limestone bluff you're looking at right there is chock full of marine fossils. So this became a really ideal spot for a Foundation of the Sea exhibit. And a year ago, I had this vision of those giant tropical fish swimming along that limestone bluff as if they're in a coral reef. So anyway, that's how that came about. And the technology behind that is those are steel rods drilled about 18 inches into solid limestone. <laughs> and somehow it worked. And they're still there. McEwen says once the Smithsonian exhibit ends later this year, they plan to install other permanent panels. And she hopes people will continue to see the value in preserving nature in places like Cane Hill. Nature is central to the human experience and to to rest and to, you know, recharging. And um, obviously education is a big part of that too, but I, this feels like a perfect place to sort of retreat and recharge and hope that it, it becomes a place that people come to experience in that way as well. Habitat opens this Saturday, April 16th, with a public reception from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Visitor Center in Cane Hill. The free exhibit will run through November 16th. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Legends of the Blues take center stage at 214 by Cash, formerly known as the Art Center of the Ozarks, in downtown Springdale. The Music Education Initiative is hosting the traveling exhibit, A Cast of Blues. Featured are resin casts made of blues icons, faces like Ruth Brown, R.L. Burnside, and Bobby Blue Bland, as created by Mississippi-based artist Sharon McConnell Dickerson. The exhibit opens to the public for free today. Yesterday, we met Orson Weems, executive director and co-founder of the Music Education Initiative. We sat in the middle of the gallery, surrounded by the mass and the accompanying exhibit photographs of blues musicians. I just saw this uh, by accident, literally looking at something else that uh, a gentleman, Dr. William Ferris, had told me to look at some links that he had done. And we were talking about the Southern Folklore Center over in Memphis that he had helped uh, with, as well as the, uh, some other museums that he has done and worked with in archives. And, and he was telling me, and I saw this link, and it showed me about a cast of blues, and I looked at it, and then I started reading about this artist. And this is an 
artist that became an artist after another career. Uh, she was a professional flight attendant, as she says, corporate flight attendant, but also became a corporate chef on, for private jets and corporate jets. And uh, at one of her places where she was uh, at a stop, she had actually started seeing her vision was dwindling. And she became vision impaired and went blind. And uh, one of the things that she went to was to uh, figure out what to do. And she started sculpting. And it turned out that she started uh, sculpting just beautiful pieces. And she had, was in New Mexico, moved to Mississippi. People say, why are you moving to Mississippi? And at some point, she started meeting some of these legends coming to her house. And uh, she came up with the idea to sculpt them, to capture this, and so help to conserve and preserve this blues legend of, of this music so that it can go on and on. And she put this in uh, these resin casts that are before us, Cal. And, they, and I've heard fra phrases from magnificent and remarkable to this is just out of sight. <laughs> so not for everybody, because you're taller than me, but these are put where they're, I'm eye level with them. And, and they're so well done that it's almost, it's an intimate experience for me. <laughs> That's right. When I looked at some of the modifications and the way that they were supposed to be hung on the walls from the specs from the Mid-America Arts Alliance and Exhibits USA, I was like, well, these look kind of low to me. I'm 6'3", so I said, this is kind of low to me. And so we figured to go ahead and use their guidelines, and then we looked at other photographs for where these had have toured before at other installations and all. And we saw that this is exactly what it for, for it to do is to give the idea of just that intimacy where people can actually touch. And she's encouraged uh, the audiences that she deals with, Sharon McConnell Dickerson, to have the people touch the work, especially those that are vision impaired, so that they can see and feel uh, what she has put before them. And they have this high sense of of the, the using their fingers and hands and can feel and can see her work right there. So that's why these casts are right there at that level. Here's for being 5'7". It comes in handy once in a while. So I, I want to go back to that. Encouraging to yes. touch, that's counterintuitive when you go into a, an art exhibit. That is correct. Uh, one of the early things that I read is about this exhibit is that uh, if people look at the, some of the older photos of this. This has been touring, I understand, since 2014. It's gone to several places, and a lot of the photos that I've seen are actually having kids and adults just actually put their hands on them. Uh, these can be cleaned with just mild soap and water. Uh, they, and especially uh, now, a lot of folks are hands off, but she wants them to experience what she was dealing with if they could and those that are vision impaired will have the idea of what they were what she was doing when the, when they feel and touch these cast what i love about the collection of legends that we have here is there's some names that everybody will know and then some names that people who are not necessarily blues fans or aficionados will know so it's it's a wide swath that it is it's some that won't be recognized but when they hear the music they will say oh my gosh I, I feel that and I know that or I've heard that sound before and and then there's some like for instance you see Bo Diddley over there you see Bobby Rush you see Bobby Blue Bland Coco Taylor Hubert Sumlin and R.L. Burnside Arthur Turner it's just for magnificent collection and it's not just the cast that we see. I mean, there is a brief, but still sort of a summation of their career with some of the hits. Correct, it is. It gives a, not too much because you want them to read enough about it 
they can go online later if they want to, but these, uh, the placards are there for just, like you said, to give a, a summary of some of the things, and it's remarkable. I mean, you've got Grammy winners on the wall, you've got, uh, uh, I think, uh, Coco Taylor, Ruth Brown, I think, has a Tony Award. It's just a, a really, uh, and gold records, I can only want to count. I mean, you got Mr. Bobby Blue Bland here, you got two-time Grammy winner Bobby Rush here. Uh, I mean, Little Milton is down there, Kyle. I mean, so come on, this is just an incredible collection. This is sort of exactly what the Music Education Initiative is about, right? It is. Thank you for saying that. Uh, again, we want it to be uh, and have been a part of the community, and we're sharing our experiences and what some of the things that we want to share with the community are bringing in programming. And we said that uh, we wanted to continue to bring first-class programming into Northwest Arkansas so that people, and the majority of people here in this area, may not know about the blues or what this is. So this is just a facet of what the Music Education Initiative is. This is one of the programs that we have. We have other ones coming. Uh, as you know, we've talked about our workshops that we've done and had those, the production, education, technical training workshops. Those have been fantastic. Then we got some great supporters with this. And when I presented this to some of the folks in the area, the Tyson Family Foundation was jumped right in. They, they wanted to be a part of it. We've got other supporters. We've got White Spider. We have uh, MTI Consulting Group that came in and helped install this with with that and we have uh, I, I think we have uh, John Lee and his wife Yvonne Lee that's here that's helping us as well and cash I mean how can you they actually uh, allowed us to have this gallery usage and cash is just seeing what we're having and, and they're just glad to have us here in this facility at the 214 art gallery there's no way you and I can even begin to sum up the importance of blues right. to, to to music but you look at the roots gospel rock and roll R&B disco, almost everything. You said it. That's the root of the music is the blues and the, the jazz, as I've been told, is the contemporary and those things that came from the blues, as you just said, the rock and roll, the, the major rock and roll acts and the legends that have really come and used blues to further their career uh, is just a, a list that we can can name. I mean, it's just incredible. And you talk about some of those rock and roll legends when you read and research the history of the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, these guys all come in, the Black Keys, and then you have the folks that say, well, that's not the kind of music that we want to see in the mainstream, but it is. And uh, as I've done my research and study, uh, I knew it was big, but it's just really become an incredible industry to, unto itself. And what we want to do here in Northwest Arkansas with the Music Education Initiative is continue to bring this, but to let folks know that there is a thriving community of younger blues, acts, and arts, artists that are coming, and we want to see what we can do from Northwest Arkansas to help actually to conserve and preserve, but also Think about breaking some things from here in Northwest Arkansas. These folks are looking for places to, to show their craft and their art, and we want to be a conduit for that to help them carry it on, this next generation. Well, and I love that you brought that up because, you know, so many of these folks we've been talking about were born in the early 1900s and, and even some of the photographs, T-Model Ford and Super Chicken. 
but there are photos of young people too. Yes, that's correct. And you see some of them playing at festivals and just recently one that had been here to uh, Bentonville, I think uh, maybe two or three years ago was Chris Stone Kingfish Ingram, and he just won a Grammy uh, less than two weeks ago for, the, I think, one of the best contemporary jazz albums. And this is a young guy. And so when you have the young guys like that, then you have Cedric Burnside, whose grandfather is exhibited in this exhibit with R.L. Burnside. You have Cedric also winning a blues album just at the Grammys here a couple of weeks ago, and he's produced by somebody that's a team and a big friend of ours, and, and we say family to us, is Boo Mitchell from Royal Studios in Memphis did that. And so when we see that next generation, we want to have a part in it, and we can do it from here in Northwest Arkansas. Orson Weems is the executive director and co-founder of the Music Education Initiative. We talked yesterday in the gallery at 214 by Cash in downtown Springdale. A cast of blues opens today. There is no admission charge. The exhibit is open Monday through Saturday from 10 until 5. School groups are encouraged to attend. Sharon McConnell-Dickerson, the creator of The Mass, and curator Chuck Haddix are scheduled to be at the gallery on April 30th. More details about that day to come. You can learn more at themusiceducationinitiative.org. This is Ozarks at Large. It's Friday, so it is time for Becca Martin-Brown, Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Hello, Becca. Hi, Kyle. I've got good news and bad news. I like the good news first. Okay, the good news is this Sunday is Easter Sunday, and there's eggs and bunnies and all happiness everywhere. And the bad? It's April 15th. Oh, well, yes. Yes. Being an adult is so much work. (laughs) Well... But you usually give us diversions, things that we'll enjoy. So I'm counting on you again this Friday. Are you going to deliver? Oh, I got some good ones. Okay. Get in your car, on your bike, however you travel, and go to 623 East Rock Street in Fayetteville. And what's going to happen there? What's going to happen there is an open studio with Denise Lanuti, who makes amazing glasswork. I met her way back when she was making lampwork beads, which are the gorgeous, how do you describe a lampwork bead? They usually have little nubby things on them, mm-hmm. and they're different colors of glass, and they're gorgeous. And one makes them with a stringer of glass and a torch. A torch? Yeah. I've seen her make them. And the better you get at it, the more intricate you can make the beads. And so everybody in Northwest Arkansas has beautiful Denise Lanuti beads. And then sitting at the torch all the time, as she got older, like we have, became less entertaining. So she thought she'd find something else she could do with glass. And she made a little fused glass dish and used it to display beads in at Crystal Bridges at a trunk show, and somebody wanted to buy the dish. And thus was born the future. So she and her husband Richard moved from Prairie Grove into a new house they built on Rock Street. She has like a 1,700-square-foot studio full of 
kilns and saws and grinders and glass cutting tables and light tables. And she's going to show off all the wonderful things she's been making lately at the studio open house, which is 10 o'clock to 5 o'clock today and tomorrow. One of the cool things she's got is pendants shaped like Arkansas that show like landscape. And then you can toddle up the road to Rogers for a film with live music. Oh, yes. Montopolis is in town. Montopolis is in town from Austin. They've been here before. But this film is, I would venture to say, a unique opportunity. It's called Man with a Movie Camera. And it was filmed in Ukraine in 1929. And it was, as I understand it, kind of a propaganda piece showing the people in Ukraine doing things, having lives. Oh, look how nice life was in Ukraine. But in actuality, it kind of backfired and was more of a a chance for Ukraine to speak for itself. Mm-hmm. And so there is a new score created by Montopolis. This is going to be in downtown Rogers. Yes, you can have all this for $12 at 7 o'clock on Saturday at Arkansas Public Theater at the Victory in Rogers. It is part of the APT movie series and also hosted by Cinema of the Ozarks. And then on Sunday, Theater Squared has debuted a new show. (laughs) It's called The Elaborate Entrance of Chad Deity. And you love this because it's about something that you love. I love, oh, people are going to make funny faces. I love professional wrestling. And here's why I love professional wrestling. It's as close to vaudeville as you can get. And this is a new play, newish play. It debuted in Chicago in 2009 about all the things that go on behind the scenes in not only professional wrestling, but life. You know, xenophobia, racism, homophobia. But you also get to sit alongside a wrestling ring and yell like you're in a wrestling match. I'm going to quote Joanna Bell, who works for Theater Squared, who said she's never screamed so much at a show, and it was partly terror because they're doing the moves in the ring and partly yelling for the person she wanted to win. 7.30, Tuesday through Saturday, 2 o'clock on Saturday and Sunday through May 8th. Tickets start at $10 at Theater Squared in Fayetteville. Also this weekend, it's the spring book sale at the Bentonville Public Library from 9 to 4 today and tomorrow. Arts Live is doing Laura Engel's Wilder Voice of the Prairie at 6.30 today and 2 and 6.30 tomorrow. Outdoors at the Shiloh Museum in Springdale. Van Buren High School is doing Clue tonight and Saturday at 7 o'clock. It is free, but they'd like to have your donations toward a summer trip to the Disney Broadway Performance Workshop. And University Theater is wrapping up Ride the Cyclone, 7.30 today and Saturday and 2 on Sunday. Roller coasters and wrestling rings on stage. Could the world be any happier? Oh, and it's also... Tomorrow's the Battle of Fayetteville from 10 to 4 at Headquarters House Museum in Fayetteville. So you got a roller coaster, a wrestling ring, and cannon fire. It's a loud weekend, folks. Isn't it wonderful? (laughs) Becca Martin-Brown, Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, joining us by phone from her office in Bella Vista. Becca, 
Have as loud a weekend as you want. Thank you so much. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, concludes its current main stage season Saturday, April 30th at Walton Arts Center with a celebration of human resilience, performing Mahler's intensely powerful Sixth Symphony under the baton of maestro Paul Haas. Tickets available at 443-5600 or sonamusic.org. Support for KUAF comes from the Walmart Museum, offering shopping in the original Walton's Five and Dime on the Bentonville Square. walmartmuseum.com for more information. The dance company Contra Tiempo's plan is no less than to transform the world through dance. If anybody can do that, it's the dancers, the art of us, in Contratiempo. The company is at Walton Art Center this week, leading a master class last night and bringing their latest work, Joy Us Justice, to the stage tomorrow night at 8 as part of the venue's 10 by 10 series. Founding Artistic Director Anna Maria Alvarez places a high priority on involving dancers, other artists, and community members in the creative process. She says collaboration is a significant part of Contratiempo. Collaboration is like fundamental to the ethos and the DNA of our of our organization for sure. And really, the work is about community. I mean, if you think about the forms that we use uh, in our work, it's it's about people gathering together in communal spaces, sharing ideas and stories, and moving our bodies together, and creating resilience and hope and joy through dance and movement and music. And so, all of those forms. Uh, inherently are connected to collaboration and, and you know, more is possible with connection. And so that's really like the way that we move the work through as well. And and really, I think, um, you know, collaboration on every level. So it's not just in the art making, there's collaboration happening, but in how the work is getting out there is happening, how we enter and exit community. Um, so when we come into a place, it's not about just plopping in and performing and sharing, but we always, uh, part of the ethos of our company is making deep connections with the people in the communities and where we're performing. And so right now with this piece, we have a community cast. So there will be members of your community who will be on stage with us dancing and and uh, performing w- alongside our company members. So that piece of the collaboration is also important. And, and then we also ask our audience members to really participate and and be a part of it. And so you're not just passively sitting and watching and observing, but you get invited to participate throughout the show. And at the end, there's a dance party uh, in front of the stage that that audience members can come join us and and get down and dance with us. You mentioned collaboration at the beginning because there's all obviously choreographer and dancer can have collaboration Mm -hmm. dancers with each other. But when a piece is in its very initial stages, there's collaboration with community? So I will say in the very, very like seeds of the beginning of the performance really happen in my own brain. And <laughs> um, I I usually, it takes me about, you know, eight to, eight to 12 months of percolating and thinking and writing and researching and engaging in a top topic in a and that that has the the elements of collaboration that are in that part are about conversation and about sharing out and um, and exploring and but the but then after that work has been done I bring in the idea into the company space and then we start working on it and l- workshopping it and laboratorying it and really and I say laboratorying as a verb because really that idea of um, having it be something that we're exploring and playing and engaging and 
creating things and putting them to the side and then coming back and revisiting them, that whole process is usually another year. Um, and that that also, for the last three pieces that we've created, really does um, deeply engage community in that process through this process called the Choreographic Laboratory, which is a series of workshops that we do locally, usually in Los Angeles, but we can do them outside of L.A. as well. Um, but while the piece is being created, we're sharing little elements of the piece. We're holding story circling opportunities for people to share their own stories in relationship to the themes. And then we're asking um, participants to devise and play and engage in their own movement making and that those experiences then wind up kind of moving the creative process of the work. I wish people could see you as you describe this because you can't stop smiling. <laughs> oh. You can't stop smiling. And and I know joy is part is another important word. Totally. What happens on stage? Yes, absolutely. So joy, I mean, I will say I learned a lot about joy through this process. And I don't think it's an accident that the piece that we did right before this was called Agua Furiosa. And it was a piece, it was taking on um, the Caliban character in The Tempest and and having Caliban's experience be felt through all of these different narratives. And it was a really heavy, really intense and many times dark, you know, really dark piece that felt very heavy, very, very much like you needed a soul shower is what people used to say afterwards. <laughs> um, and... Um, I remember the first day we premiered that piece, I said in my head, uh, like as I was sitting in the audience watching that piece, that the next piece we make needs to be about joy. Um, and I really felt that because of the because of how long we had been kind of in this really intense process uh, with Agua Furiosa. And so we, for two years, did these radical joy sessions, which were, uh, we called them sabor sessions, which were practice joy sessions where you rolled up your sleeves every Friday night and in community danced and jammed and got down and laughed. And even the days we didn't feel like showing up and practicing, we every single Friday night we showed up for two years um, inside of our South LA community. And, you know, that practice really taught us that joy is about uh, – joy is a practice. It's a resilience-building practice. It's not something that you either have or you don't. It's it's a muscle. It's something that you, you have to work on, and the more you work on it, the more you have access to it, and that everybody has it as a birthright. It's part of all of our – it's part of being a human being is having access to it, but it's about – how do you practice um, so that it that, so that you have more facility to be able to bring on and draw on it when you need it, um, and and that understanding really was the root of of the work. I should also say, in the process of these sabor sessions, you know, we did the community uh, story circling as a regular practice also, and I was so struck throughout the entire process of joyous justice how when people were asked to tell stories about joy that they always told stories about their mothers, their grandmothers, the matriarchs of their family. And that was such a beautiful discovery. And again, that was one of those things that just comes out of community. Like I couldn't tell people to do that, right? Like that was something that really just emerged, emerged out of people sharing their stories. And so that wound up impacting and moving the direction of the piece. The piece is very much connected to mothers and matriarchy and Mother Earth and all of it. Since there are... Um dancers from the regions, wherever you go, I imagine 
the show is always a little bit different wherever yes. you go. Yes, absolutely. So I'm really excited that this show, one of the um, one of my favorite moments in the piece is this. We internally call it the roller coaster because it feels like an emotional roller coaster, but um, it's also often called the song of whatever we're singing it to. And it started off with this piece Toro Mata, and then it kind of moved into a piece called Kanya. But it's a it's the dancers collectively gather on stage and experience viscerally this experience of filling with emotion, emotion pouring out, and then the sort of feeling of like letting go and resolving of that emotion. So you feel the roller coaster of emotion and it's always to a live song. It's always to someone singing live. And so we're going to, Sammy, who's from Walton Arts Center, is going to be singing live as part of the show here. And she's she's bringing a, a song from her own cultural heritage. It's a song, um, it's in Hebrew, but there's also part, there are words that are Algerian. Um, and it's a it's a blessing. It's a it's a Jewish blessing that's going to be sung as and we've never had something like that being sung as part of Joyous Justice. But this is bringing, again, another level of sort of cultural connection and um, and resilience building and also like really our shared humanity. Right. Like the idea that that um, whatever language you're speaking, wherever you come from, uh Joy and and emotion and connection and community is important. It's critical in our humanity, and so I'm really excited for that. For that, and also this this community cast who's going to be kind of performing in and out of the entire piece. Can I give one other shameless plug? Absolutely, is you that can. Um, we run a summer program every single um, every single August, and it's in Los Angeles. And what we love about touring is that we make these incredible connections with local dancers and people who are. Um, you know, movers and activists and people who really want to think about how to make a difference in the world through their body and through their body bodily practice. And we run this program. It's called Contratiempo Futuro, and it's two weeks. And so we'd love to have some folks from Arkansas join us this summer. And again, the beauty of these community casts is that we usually do wind up having people from all the different states where we visit. So I do want to just share that. It's an opportunity if you want to dance more and you want to engage with the company more. Um, definitely. Where can you find out about that? So uh, we are on Instagram. It's contra underscore tiempo is our Instagram handle. My own Instagram is movement artivist. Um, and then our website, contratiempo.org, contra-tiempo.org is our, is our website. And you can find all of our so other social media handles and information how to connect with us, ex- support the work, et cetera, et cetera. Anna Maria Alvarez is the founding artistic director of Contratiempo, based in Los Angeles. The dance company's latest production, Joy Us, Just Us, will be performed at Walton Arts Center tomorrow night, beginning at 8, as part of the venue's 10x10 series, meaning most tickets are $10. Anna Maria Alvarez came to the Carver Center for Public Radio yesterday. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Historic Cane Hill hosts the Smithsonian Exhibition Habitat, opening Saturday, April 16th at 10 a.m. This free outdoor experience features exhibits and sculptures throughout the campus, each exploring how protecting habitats protects life within the Ozark landscape. HistoricCaneHillAR.org for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. With me via Zoom is Courtney Lanning. Courtney, welcome back to the show. Kyle, thanks for having me. When we get together, we talk about a film. That's what we're going to do today. And boy, based on the notes you sent me uh, to get me prepared for this, you really, really enjoyed this movie. 
Kyle, I cannot undersell this. Um, and I can't oversell it because it's hands down one of the most important films I've seen in a very long time. Um, it's not even really a typical movie. Uh, it's called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And it's honestly more of an experience. Um, there is so much originality and soul to this masterpiece. This movie made me feel things that so few other pieces of cinema have. Um, you know, normally I can find something wrong with a movie by the time the credits roll, uh, even the best films. And this is truly a, a 10 out of 10. And that's why I don't like to give 10 out of 10s often is because if you do that, they become meaningless. But this one earns its perfect status. Okay. So based on what we just heard and the title, which is everything, everywhere, all at once, is it even possible to tell us what the movie is about? See, here's the thing. I can give you a basic premise that you can use to judge, oh, I want to go see this or not, and you'll, you'll do that. Um, but by the time the credits roll, you'll realize the movie will have been so much more. The basic premise is uh, a woman owns a laundromat with her family. It's a failing business. Uh, she is lower class. She's not making very much money, and she's being audited by the IRS. So her life is kind of what she thinks is a living nightmare. It's just very tough on her. Um, she's being audited. And as she's being audited, this version of her husband from a different universe shows up and informs her that the multiverse, all of the universes in existence are in danger. And she's the only one who can stop this monstrous thing from destroying everything. So she essentially has to borrow skills from her other lives, whether they be martial arts or dances or different things from different experiences that she's lived in other universes. And she uses that to try to save all of the multiverses by stopping this unnamed monstrous force that I won't give away without spoilers. It sounds incredibly high concept and high concept films, you know, have a level of difficulty, but this one succeeds. It does. And it's, it's so relatable because it's grounded in things that so many people experience. You know, she's having tax problems with the IRS. Her business is failing. Her marriage is in trouble. She has a tough time relating with her daughter. Her parents are, are overbearing and semi-abusive. Um, these are all things that so many people experience every day. So although this is a high concept film, these things make it relatable. All right. You gave it a 10 out of 10. So that means the acting is, is, is top notch. Absolutely. In fact, you know, I, I think that Michelle Yeoh, uh, who plays the main character, she deserves an Oscar for her performance in this film. Um, and I'll be very, very upset if she's not even nominated for it, but just go ahead and give her best actress. Uh, I know it's early in the year, but nobody else is going to come close to what she achieved in this film. Uh, and then there's uh, Kihi Kwan, who made his debut in Temple of Doom. Right. Went on to be in The Goonies, and now he's in this movie. Um, and he is the heart and soul of everything, everywhere, all at once. You know, he serves this vital role of reminding viewers that there's love and goodness in this world. And that they are the most powerful force, even if they are often most underrated. 
for a movie that spans universes and sounds to be like this existential, um, um, experimental sort of narrative, it sounds like from your description, it's often warm as well. It is, you know, this movie offers so much to viewers. Uh, it's, it's hilarious. It's real about the problems that people face in life. Um, it's heartfelt in dealing with family and the value of everyday life. And it's mind melting in concept. You know, there's something here for everybody to love. And I honestly haven't stopped thinking about it since I watched it. You know, I walked out of the theater, I was going to my car. People were telling me that this big, huge rainstorm had come through. And I just, I wasn't even paying attention because I was thinking about this movie. Everything, everywhere, all at once. It's in theaters right now. Uh, speaking of big movies, there's a big one that's, you know, part at least adjacent to one of the bigger franchises of the past quarter century coming out this week. Yes. Uh, the third Fantastic Beasts movie. It's Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. And you, like you said, it loosely ties into Harry Potter and that's kind of its problem. But uh, if, if that's your, still your thing, go for it. What are we going to talk about next week? Well, next week, uh, I'd like to review a new animated movie from DreamWorks coming out called The Bad Guys. Oh, I've seen commercials for this and it, it seems like it has an interesting concept. It's like the animals that we often think of as the evil characters, a shark or whatnot, we kind of get a, a peek into their lives? Yes. It's it's kind of, it seems to me like a heist movie, but I guess at some point in the film, the quote-unquote villains, the bad guys, decide, eh, let's try being good instead. Courtney Lanning. Oh, full review in the paper? The Arkansas Democrat Gazette on Friday, yes. Courtney, as always, thank you so much for your time. Kyle, thanks for having me. That's the Mingus Big Band in the background, and I'm Robert Ginsberg, your host for Shades of Jazz. We'll hear more from this band, who will be performing at Walton Arts Center on April 29th, as well as music from John Batiste, Chucho Valdez, the Fayetteville Jazz Collective, and much more. Tune in to Shades of Jazz right here on KUAF. Shades of Jazz tonight at 10 on KUAF and tomorrow morning beginning at 11 on KUAF 3. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Chaffee Crossing. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors included Daniel Carruth, Michael Tilley, Becca Martin-Brown, and Courtney Lanning. Timothy will be with you Sunday morning at 9 for the next edition of Weekend Ozarks at Large. I'll be back with you noon and 7 p.m. Monday to start a brand new week of our daily edition of Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks so much for being with us. Stay safe this weekend. We'll talk again very soon.